Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. What up, Boards Insiders? It's Patrick here, and you have not heard from me in a while which is because I am super busy. Uh, thankfully, we've got uh, Chris Brightigan, our creative director, and Madison Linden, who is our administrative director. Both of those are just fancy titles. Um, they should really just be the people who actually uh, keep ITB going and run this whole operation. While I'm out practicing uh, medicine as an obstetric laborist, um, and recently opened up a level one opioid treatment program, um, which I'm excited to announce, we will be doing a series on addiction uh, in the coming uh, months. And of course, I've got these four children who have various needs and each present their own unique challenges when it comes to raising them. Needless to say, it is tough to balance all this, and I uh, very much thank the people on the team here at ITB and the many volunteers who help us keep this content going, and especially our new hosts. So many thanks, too, to Sarah, Pranay, and Amy, which you can hear um, over on the Study Smarter channel or the Inside the Board's main channel. Today's episode's a little different. Um, actually, this is a cross post to another podcast that's um, kind of the spinoff media arm of Inside the Boards called Ars Longa Media uh, produces. The podcast is called Healthy Toxic, and it's all about what makes relationships work or not work um, with such an interest nowadays in narcissism. And um, toxic relationships, you know, you, as you see in, in pathological personality states, um, we decided to uh, start a podcast related to that. And this is an interview I did with Dr. Ramani Dervasala, who is a popular uh, commentator on all things narcissism and toxic relationships. She's a licensed uh, psychologist, uh, professor of psychology very articulate and clear uh, teacher of uh, things that uh, you might find interesting. Um, I asked her to do an interview because it seems that sort of like toxic dynamics still persist, you know, crazy uh, in medicine and healthcare. So I wanted to kind of tackle what the state of education and training looks like in terms of its level of toxicity or difficult people and behaviors, um, attracting diff difficult people and encouraging uh, difficult behaviors, if you will. And then just see if she could provide some advice for those who are in tough situations with the residents or attendings above them um, to kind of make it through and uh, not lose their souls in the process of training. As I've often said, we all come to medicine with this idealism that somehow just kind of gets trained out of us throughout the course of our medical education. So take a listen to this podcast, and if you like what you hear and want to learn more, subscribe to Healthy Toxic, and we'll put a link in the show notes, of course. Dr. Romani focuses all of her work, really, on the etiology and impact of narcissism and high-conflict entitled antagonistic personality styles on human relationships, mental health, and society itself. 
So she's well worth listening to. She's got a lot of wisdom. And without any delay, here you go. But first, our question of the day. This is from Stat Pearls. Actually, these are from Stat Pearls. So thanks, Stat Pearls. Um, and we're going over a little bit about some personality disorder things in line with today's topic, which is narcissism and toxic behavior in general. And so here we go. A 50-year-old man comes in for an initial psychiatric evaluation with chief complaints of anxiety and recent difficulties at work. He begins the session by complimenting the physician on her background credentials and then self-identifies as being, quote, the best lawyer in his firm. He asks for a particular medication that he has read about and found that is reputedly the best medication for anxiety. When the psychiatrist attempts to discuss his symptoms of anxiety further, to determine the course of treatment, the patient begins to demean the clinician and question her knowledge. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, borderline personality disorder, B, schizoid personality disorder, C, narcissistic personality disorder, or D, antisocial personality disorder? And so this vignette presents a picture of a patient who most likely has narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD. NPD is defined in the DSM as a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, which can be, you know, in fantasies of unlimited power, perfect love, or in uh, behavior, as well as a need for admiration and a lack of empathy. You may also see in vignettes, or unfortunately in real life, interpersonal exploitative behavior and fishing for compliments. That, that'd be a good way of uh, admiration seeking. So in this vignette, though, the patient introduces himself in a grandiose fashion. I'm the best lawyer. Uh, okay, dude, cool. We just met. Not sure how that's relevant to your care um, or why you're coming in today. Uh, at any rate, he also attempts to dictate the session by asking for the medication he wants. Now, of course, either of those are not really in and of themselves bad, pathologic, whatever you want to say. Saying I'm the best lawyer, it could be a healthy expression of a person's accomplishment in the right context, I suppose, but it'd have to be backed up by reality. Um, so an Olympic athlete who says I'm the best runner in the world, if uh, she holds a, a gold medal, then, you know, that's substantiable. Looking at, like, requesting medication, yeah, that's not in and of itself bad either. We're doctors. Uh, we want our patients to be informed, educated, have good health literacy, you know? Um, but if it comes across in a sense of a disregard for the necessary trust that is required in a physician-patient relationship and also disregards the expertise of the physician, then, you know, that's not legit. And then dead ringer, he demeans her when his demands aren't met, and that evidences a lack of empathy, and that sort of sense of entitlement is also brought out. We'll get more into the distractors with uh, another question, because I want to draw out a few more points here, uh, just because this stuff is so, it's personally, it's just an interest of mine. And it's so helpful if you learn about like the interpersonal dynamics uh, that can take place and, and have a framework for, you know, seeing how your probably fellow students, uh, many of your teachers will behave and treat 
others within the context of work. And then, of course, yeah, in your personal life, um, there are definitely some red flags for pathologic narcissism um, that you should, you know, be on the lookout for and then uh, probably avoid. You don't want your life to be in disarray. All right, next one. Thanks, stat pearls again. A 25-year-old woman presents to the emergency department asking for a prescription for clonazepam. The nurse on triage informs her the ED does not prescribe controlled substances. The patient then becomes irate and asks to speak to, quote, a supervisor in charge or the head doctor. That's the doctor in charge, not the head doctor, uh, like a psychiatrist. Uh, She then proceeds to shout in a demeaning manner and pace around the nurse's desk. Which of the following traits determines the severity of the personality disorder most likely present in this patient? Is it A, impulsivity, B, grandiosity, C, aggression, or D, lack of empathy? And the correct answer here is C, aggression. So the patient in this scenario has NPD, and again, pervasive pattern of grandiosity and fantasy or behavior, a need for admiration, lack of empathy. Um, Those are key features of NPD. And aggression is an indicator of the severity of the personality disorder. The more aggressive the presentation, the more severe the personality pathology. In the case of NPD, aggression can be described in many different ways, but it's often just out of proportion to the scenario um, and uh, in, in life or in a vignette will be uh, presented as like verbal abuse, uh, outbursts, uh, biting, sarcasm, that sort of stuff. So... In review, I think you'll enjoy today's discussion on narcissism. Check out the Healthy versus Toxic podcast from Ars Longa Media and be on the lookout for people in your personal life or in work relationships who exhibit DSM-type criteria for MPD, like a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, lack of empathy, and exaggerating achievements, expecting to be recognized uh, for achievements or accomplishments uh, without actually achieving or accomplishing them. So watch. Watch when you're on the wards. Watch your teachers. Watch your colleagues. Watch patients. Watch other people. You know, these are all things that um, cause real suffering. Uh, These patients have, you know, inner secret feelings of insecurity, shame, vulnerability, uh, humiliation. There's a significant inability uh, or lack of insight surrounding uh, those feelings, and it, it manifests in those you know, behaviors or examples I just mentioned, and which show up in people with unhealthy narcissism and those with narcissistic personality disorder. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Dr. Romani, thank you so much for taking the time. It it really is a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Beeman. Absolutely. So 
Our interest in in asking you to come on the show was the the popularity of your content and the unique perspective you take as a licensed professional. Um, I think you do an excellent job of balancing the concerns that people have and the frustration that's expressed on the internet tempered by your expertise and clinical experience and, um, I guess, more judicious use of uh, uh, information to to kind of present these topics. So I would like to know just, you know, as a start, a little bit about you and how you got into this particular subject. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think everything in any academic or clinical discipline, you kind of stumble into it by accident. And I have to say that was a little bit about what happened, a little about how it happened for me in that I was sort of a traditional university professor. And then in doing some of that work, it's interesting, given some of the things I know you and I are going to talk about, is I was, I was running a um, community-based health research program. And one of the staffers kept coming back from one of the sites and saying, my gosh, these people are so mean. These patients are so mean. And I thought, this is so interesting. And the, the, the person kept coming back with the complaint. And then I talked down to the staff and what they were describing was an incredible um, pattern of antagonism. I thought, this is interesting. These people, these patients are burning their own bridge because now everybody dislikes them. The reception staff dislikes them. The nursing staff dislikes them. The physicians dread seeing them. I think there's no way these people are getting good health care. And this was a high-risk population. I thought, goodness knows what other health, they're, what, uh, whatever, what other risks they're putting their health at. And so this happened to be a unique population because they were either living with or at risk for HIV, which is where my research also was. And so I then developed about 10 years of research funded by the National Institutes of Health on these personality issues with a lot of focus on high conflict patterns like narcissism and sort of how these people get along with other people, the decisions they make. But at the same time, I'm also a clinical psychologist. So I was also practicing and people kept coming in with the same relationship story over and over. And some of them had transferred over from, they'd been with another therapist, they left that therapist. And I was like, that's so interesting. Why didn't the other therapist explain to them what a high conflict personality was? And so we would, I give them very simple psychoeducation. I'm like, that's interesting. You see this pattern you show me? They'd often come in with emails and texts. I say, you see this? This is that. And that is probably this. And this is that. And they're saying, oh my goodness. And I said, and this is probably what's going to happen. And this is what we know. And people started making rather quick decisions. They're like, now it all makes sense. Like all the puzzle pieces fell. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Why isn't the mental health profession actually educating clients on this? And that culminated in the first of my two books on narcissism, the Should I Stay or Should I Go book. Then the election happened. And no matter what anyone's politics were, all of a sudden, this word narcissism was getting tremendous traction in the media. And I noticed a lot of media pundits, a lot of commentators, and even some of the talking heads they were bringing on didn't understand it. And I thought, oh, no, this is going to get dangerous. And that's actually where me and my team really stepped up and said, let's do something. And, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not exactly like, you know, camerogenic or anything, but I'm like, what the heck, let's give it a shot. I, I'd been media trained, let's do it. And so, and then that book came of it. I contacted my publisher and I said, I'm really, really angry. I just need to write. And he's like, right. And so that's where that book came from. It was really my belief that what's about to happen to the country, I don't care what your politics are. This isn't about politics. This is about behavior. And I said, the whole country is about to have a number done on them. And the whole country had a number done on it. And I think what I've seen is that literally what happened in the country at large is what happens in individual relationships. 
I can't change the country at large, but I can work with individuals and say, here's the pattern, do with it what you will. You want to stick it out? You want to stay in this relationship? That's on you. I'm telling you what it's going to look like. You want to move to Chicago in February? You better bring a heavy coat. (laughs) It's the same guidance I give to people who are in these relationships. And so that's how all these pieces came together. And I have to, if I gave you one quick answer to this, it'd be, I got into this because I was angry. I was angry at what people were being put through. I was angry that no one was explaining to them. I was angry at how much potential I was seeing lost in people. I was just angry. And so that's out of anger came this this focus. So I I would say one of the things that that perhaps is confusing or really requires uh, some fine distinction, when you look at popular media, like on YouTube, for instance, or blogs, the the word narcissism is thrown around just like the pundits you mentioned but it, it seems often people are talking about either clinically related or i would say philosophically related uh concepts like uh pride being a jerk mm-hmm. borderline personality or histrionic personality disorder and and then more so there's the distinction between narcissism as a trait and then narcissistic personality disorder mm-hmm. How should people look at the the terms here? Because some use toxic. I just think there's a lot of terms out there to describe a phenomenon of high conflict personality or difficult relationships. Mm-hmm. What what do you think is the best term uh, to to use, especially when they're all a little bit imprecise? Mm-hmm. They're all imprecise. I think that uh, where people are getting lost is that narcissism became a dirty word. It didn't need to become a dirty word, but it did. And the main reason it became a dirty word was a lot of people say, you shouldn't be using a clinical term. It's not a clinical term. It's a descriptive term. We really view it. um, Heinz uh, Kohut in 1968 elevated the term narcissism to narcissistic personality disorder. In 1980, the term made its first appearance in the DSM. Before that, there was no diagnosis. And if people like myself and certainly Dr. Alan Francis, I would say he who wrote the diagnostic criteria, I think they need to remove the diagnostic criteria. I think having this as a diagnosis has become very, very dangerous. It's a disorder that has no treatment. So why have it? Okay. There's no, it serves to me, there's no functionality to it. It is a, the majority of people with the disorder, the so-called disorder will never show up in treatment. And then what it does is it creates this sort of idea of like, well, they have a mental illness and then all this enabling happens. Right. How about we just take it out? They're taking out multiple other personality disorders. They've, there used to be 10. They've removed four. I'd say remove five. Get rid of this one. But until then, there's a whole litany. Every time I do a workshop on it, I have people generate the words that they think are, you know, could be used to describe narcissist, narcissism. And unfortunately, those are equally imprecise or inaccurate. Some people view it as as, um, synonymous with psychopathy and sociopathy, which it's not. Um, Some will use words like tyrannical. Can be, but that's only a piece of the pie. I'm a fan of difficult because I think that captures the experience of the other person interacting with them. And it doesn't seem to carry the same kind of weightiness as toxic. Yeah. But toxic is a, you know, it definitely, I think toxic fits. It's definitely exposure to the relationship can actually make you sick. So why not? But I think difficult probably hits it better. I actually use an acronym that I share with clinicians. The acronym is CAVED, and CAVED stands for Conflictual, Antagonistic, Vulnerable, Entitled, and Dysregulated. Those are very technical terms, but that actually all together, that captures all the themes in narcissism without ever using the word. 
judges don't want to hear it, lawyers don't want to hear it, HR departments don't want to hear it, a lot of healthcare professionals don't want to hear it. So I'm always trying to arm advocates, therapists, clinicians of all kinds with terminology they can use that won't get them into trouble. And I try to do the same thing with the public. But it, I mean, at the end of the day, not all narcissists are the same. Some are more you know, benign, some are really dangerous. And because of that continuum, it's hard to put it all under one banner. Yeah, absolutely. I know that's it's a tough subject. I uh, my background's actually in in philosophy. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I studied philosophy and then went to med school, mm-hmm. um, and have been missing uh, academia <laughs> for about the past decade. Uh, but in you know, in reading just the history of at least Western culture, it seems to me that there are. I guess, entities or ideas that descriptors um, that capture an element of what is called narcissism nowadays. The Greeks, you know, Greeks had hubris. Mm-hmm. Christians have uh, the seven deadly sins with pride being, you know, the the chief of all of them. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think there is overlap or um, can non-medical, non-clinical um, ideas inform our view of uh, personalities, personality disorders, how to handle relationships, things, things like that. Because, I mean, you say it's a disorder without a treatment. In that sense, then, you know, I mean, we call people different descriptors like I, I would say though but the thing is though an adjective a baker is not to me not an adjective right it's a function yeah. but to me an adjective to, is is friendly is boring anxious so those are words like narcissism i would have to define what i mean by boring okay i'd have to define what i mean by anxious okay so that's the way i could describe someone but i have to tell you if i said to someone hey i talked to your friend your friend is boring they might be like oh i don't think that's true but okay they wouldn't say, don't use that word. It's so clinical. To me, narcissism is no more clinical than the word anxious, boring, stubborn, friendly. They're all, they're just adjectives that capture a whole list of patterns that are associated with that. Because I, it's almost like if I tell you every night, oh, for dinner, I had chicken and carrots and potato and celery, chicken broth. You'd be like, oh, you have soup. I don't want to tell you the ingredients every time. It's just a little bit easier for me if I have one word that can sort of capture this pattern. And somewhere along the line, somebody got to be in their bonnet and said, don't use a clinical term. It's not a clinical term. I actually think the philosophers have actually done some really, really interesting work because we start getting into, you know, where the philosophers get interesting is that they start bringing into conversations about morality and rightness of behavior, you know, sort of these value-laden terms that psychologists often steer away from. And, you know, in fact, um, I recently uh, put together a a long article on, on gaslighting and, you know, where I found most of the most interesting literature on gaslighting was the philosophy literature, not the psychology literature. They had done the deepest dive, but the philosophers were almost like lawyers. They were very di- distant from the pain it was causing other people. So they made a very intellectual argument with little um, with little ability, or maybe that's the nature of the discipline, for recognizing that this was, this was tearing other people apart. And that dispassion, I, na- I recognize is the nature of their discipline, but analytically, they got it. Yeah. And so I think that what ends up happening, and I think this is the, this, the de- this is the dead end I'm trying to break through in my career, is that I understand even why people become narcissistic, and it ain't a pretty journey to getting there. These people have been through their own thing, I am sorry they went through it, and it is not a license to abuse someone else. To me, the buck stops with you lashing out at someone. That's unacceptable. And I want to take the person being belittled, educate them, and say, this is on you. This is going to keep happening. 
So I'm happy to throw you back into these waters if that's your choice, but you need to understand you're never going to tame the shark. So you're going to keep getting bitten. Now, I've now told you this. You still want to jump in the water? And they're like, no, I don't want to jump in the water anymore. Some people do. Some people do. And then, I, then I, that's, that's their journey. Let them take it. But the fact is, is that what the mental health profession, honestly, philosophy, no discipline has been willing to talk about the impact of these personalities on other people. Yes. And when people do write these books, they end up in the popular psych literature and in a, in a sort of an arm of the literature that's often not as well regarded, if you will. Yeah. You know, so it's considered that's the problem. It's, it's almost marginalized from the jump. I would argue that that may be uh, symptomatic of medicine healthcare's um, own uh, narcissism as a, as a collective because there's there's a tendency for mm-hmm. I'll speak uh, for all doctors here um, doing my own little narcissistic thing. Um, there's a tendency for us to feel like we own diagnoses, um, but Patients come often with these clusters of symptoms, concerns, and, and things that bother them mm-hmm. uh, that, that are distinct from an experiential standpoint. Like lots of patients describe what, it, what has been called now and given various terms like, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome or uh, chronic Lyme disease. There, there are different terms given to uh, descriptors or sets of experiences that patients have that are kind of dismissed by physicians. Oh, that's not real. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a terrible way to look at it because mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. person's experience, mm-hmm. there's a phenomenological, if you will. Correct. Um, yeah, you know, like I, it's just, it, it drives me nuts, honestly. Exactly. Uh, it just absolutely drives me nuts when a patient comes in and they're like, "Correct." I just took this medicine, and a day after, you know, my my knee hurt, and then I stopped taking it, and my knee stopped hurting, or I felt really tired on this, and I've seen people are dismissed all the time in a in a clinical context, like, mm-hmm. "I know that medicine doesn't do that." Well, okay, I mean, on the whole. Actually, let me give a great example. I'm an OBGYN. And um, in order to anesthetize a certain part of, um, you know, the woman's anatomy, if we're Mm -hmm. um, doing some sort of procedure that will remove a piece of of the cervix, you have to do um, an injection at at that very sensitive portion of someone's body. And all the textbooks are like, nope, doesn't hurt. There are no like sharp pain receptors there. But I mean, it looks like it's uncomfortable and patients describe pain, so that seems more real than uh, than anything written in a book. Correct. So, Right, but it's a deny. I mean, I think that what we do, though, is we, what we then, then a person will come in, they'll talk about their relationship. It could be a boss, it could be a parent, it could be a partner, whoever it is, and they talk about their experience in this narcissistic relationship. I'll just use the shorthand. And this person is often confused, full of self-doubt, very anxious, feels helpless, hopeless, powerless, um, socially withdrawn, isolated, you name it. If all I did was see that person in my office who's going through this relationship, I could throw the whole kitchen sink of diagnoses. They've got an adjustment disorder. They have an anxiety disorder. They're depressed. If we widen the lens and I'm like, they're in a really difficult relationship. I'm not labeling this anything. I'm going to teach them about that relationship. And invariably, you look at these folks, they, get, they either learn about the relationship or better yet, in the cases they can actually distance from it, you see an almost immediate return to health. It's like they're a person who stopped taking the medication and their knee got better. 
And I think it's the, this is a very Western bias. This is a field though, that was written by white men. This is no relevance to them. Honestly, now the majority of people who uptake psychology are not the people who devised it in the first place. So from its, from its very, you know, again, I can get very philosophical on this. From its initiation, psychology is very much a field that was devised by people of tremendous power and privilege. We need to almost take that back, figure this out, because that's why it gaslights so many people. And so there is a time at which you say, you're sharing an experience with me. I'm going to believe your experience. I'm going to teach you what we know about these styles, these personality styles, how they may impact you. And then let's see where that gets you. Now, a person might say, no, I, I love being abused. This is great. I love this. Like This is what I believe I deserve. Then, I'm, then I got something else I'm d- different I'm working with and I know where I'm coming from. But I would say the significant majority of clients will say, now that I know this, that this person's not going to change, this changes the game for me. Like, I think I'm going to file for divorce. And I, I don't care if they file for divorce or not. I don't have a dog in that fight. My attitude is, is that if that's your choice or you're going to figure out whatever way or to distance yourself from your mother or whatever, and that causes positive change, then I've now seen sort of a bit of a, you know, I've seen the, the arc of change that I need to see as a healthcare provider. And when they don't, well, then I have to give them another set of skills. But the, the field has been unwilling to do this. And honestly, I'm on almost like practicing like a rogue at this point. <laughs> I'm definitely practicing a defiance of traditional treatment standards. Yeah. And that must be a tough spot. Um, I, I think that you know, well, one thing we should maybe um, just touch on is this idea of um, narcissistic abuse or um, one of our, our friends, Dr. Todd Grande, um, refers to it as narcissistic exposure uh, syndrome, mm-hmm. um, just kind of being in the wake of somebody who has strong toxic tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, what What is the sort of um, picture or um, syndrome that, that you see with people who are on the opposite end of a, a toxic relationship? I think that um, what, what you see is, like I said, a lot of the things I talked about, you see confusion, you see self-doubt, you see anxiety, um, you see some of the symptoms we might traditionally associate with depression. They don't get as much pleasure from life as they used to. They're very isolated. They often feel worthless. They feel helpless. They feel powerless and they feel hopeless. They can have a whole host of physical symptomatology that often have stress-related origins to it. So because, again, they're having almost like a, an illness that's manifesting as sort of a stress-related illness, they uh, get a lot of second-guessing. Um, those are some of the primary patterns we see. This. Obviously, there's an entire cascade of symptomatology, but those are the core symptoms we see. But more than anything else, it's confusion because basically they're living with someone who is probably consistently gaslighting them, who is consistently denying their reality, who is always putting their own needs first, who has no empathy. These are basic ingredients for human relationship. And in the absence of them, a person does not flourish. And so what you have then is because no one has explained to someone, this is not healthy. So if a person grew up with a parent like this, it's all they know. Yeah. And because we so value the wrong things in our society, many times people are cho- told, choose a partner who's very, very attractive. Choose a partner who's very, very wealthy. Choose a partner who's very, very successful or powerful. It's not to say that people who have those qualities consistently are narcissistic. But those qualities may cloud the person's ability to actually notice that they're being treated badly by either this attractive, successful, wealthy, powerful person, whatever they are, because we're so told that you want a provider, you want someone to rescue you. We're talking in order for this to be addressed, the level of societal change we'd need to see is flabbergasting. And yet as a society, these patterns 
these narcissistic patterns are enabled and emboldened all the time. I like that guy. He speaks his truth. He's just honest. And meanwhile, this person, they're, they're literally entitled and have no empathy and are just blowing holes in everyone around them. But he speaks the truth. And we get that all the time. And that's what I view. It's like the gaslighting isn't just person to person. That, then a person in a relationship with the speak the truth guy is getting gaslighted by the world at large. Yeah, totally. Uh, they, this person tells it like it is. Yes. Really, they're just mean. They're mean. They're mean and unfiltered and inappropriate and unable to be self-reflective in the face of other people. That to me is not okay. It's just not okay. And I have, you want to be like that. Great. I want to give people tools for how to avoid you. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's uh, absolutely. Is there something in particular that, um, if you're seeing a, a patient, a, a client in, in a session that kind of tips you off or clues you into mm-hmm. perhaps they're you know dealing with a relational problem um, like this. Uh, so for me, it's a little bit tricky because I, because it's what I specialize in. Yeah, sure. People are seeking me out for that care. So I'll say, oh, my husband, this. And I'll say, okay, so instead of saying, well, I have to be sure, I'll say, tell me, tell me the story of the relationship. So I never want to doubt them, you know, but I do want to gather the, the evidence base. And so I'll say, share with me the story. You'd be amazed at how many people literally come in like, you know what, would it help if I played a recording? And they will. They'll play a recording of one of this person's tantrums. They'll show me the sequence of text messages. They'll show me the email. It's unmistakable, yeah. you know, but it is, they, but more than anything else, they tell me the story. And it's almost as though the architecture of these relationships is identical every single time. I mean, to the point where it almost is kind of boring. It's like you keep watching the same movie, just that the characters and the settings are a little bit different. But it's like a Disney thing, right? It's like the princess gets the boy kind of thing. But it's always, sometimes she's got a fish tail, sometimes she's sleeping in the woods, but it's always the same story. And so it's the same thing with these narcissistic relationships. And so I, I hear it all and break it down with them and then slowly but surely, you know, find out how they're doing. And then we sort of lay it all out and figure out what was it that made them so vulnerable? Why did they stay in it for so long? You'd be amazed for many of them, there was that, that sort of sad hope this person would change. Obviously, they won't. In some cases, it was fear. What will happen if I end up alone? And what will happen to me financially? And so it's a very well-founded fear because in a divorce, a narcissistic partner will usually eviscerate the other spouse. So it's a pretty bad scene. And then there's also a lot of guilt because believe it or not, for how much we're presenting this as a difficult pattern, that's why I like the word difficult probably most of all, is that these are actually, they're incredibly fragile human beings, probably the most fragile human beings out there. So they're kind of pathetic. And so the day finally comes, you're like, I'm out of here. You sort of look at this really pathetic person who's just a tantruming three-year-old, no more than you'd walk out on a tantruming three-year-old, would you want to walk out on this really sort of deflated person who still sits there with their Superman cape around their neck? You're like, oh, this is sad. And so a lot of people stay in out of guilt. And, um, and then the prime reason a lot of people say is they just don't have enough information. Yeah. They just don't get it. So uh, just to, to give you an example of, of an experience I had while I was uh, a resident, um, I once saw a surgeon of sorts, I won't say this specialty, um, who was doing a robotic surgery and there's this console, it's kind of like a pod they sit in, you know, very expensive instruments um, and it's got little arms and a joystick. Uh, it's like playing a video game. Um, you do surgery that way, but he couldn't get something to work. And I just remember he slammed his fist down on a on the um, console and, 
And I was like, what? This dude's like 35, maybe 40, and he's having a, a literal tantrum right now. Um, okay. Uh, I, it's just like not acceptable. And I don't understand why in medicine, medical schools in particular, um, training institutions, it seems to be that a kind of emotionally abusive, narcissistic um, uh, culture reigns so and per gets perpetuated from you know, students who become residents, who become attendings, who are abusive to those below them. Um, and, and there's so many stories like this, but, but actually that's, that's kind of what I'd like to get into now to talk about kind of workplace narcissism in mm -hmm. general, or, um, you know, what a narcissistic relationship might look like amongst a, um, learner and a teacher, mm -hmm. um, any general kind of comments on those? So here's what's interesting. When we th immediately our knee-jerk reaction is to believe if there's a narcissistic relationship between a learner and a teacher, that the teacher is the narcissist. Sometimes it's the learner. Huh. So we've got to see it on both sides, okay? So let's start with the narcissistic teacher, which is going to be the more common model. Yeah. Now, already you have a person in a position of power, all right? So that's already, anytime there's a power differential relationship, and the narcissist is the, the powered one, you're in trouble. Yeah. Because narcissists don't know how to play nice with power. It's like giving a rifle to a two-year-old. Like, it's never going to end well. So it is they, they, their lack of empathy, entitlement, they're already fueled grandiosity, their need for validation. They, they're, they're almost this, this joy they get from watching other people squirm. It's like a vindictiveness and a, a deliberate cruelty of sorts because it allows them to fill their fragile ego. Ha ha ha, they don't know, but I know. And so their fragility gets filled up when they watch other people flounder. So it is going to be very abusive. It's going to be very invalidating. And because the learner is somebody who's still not in fully possessed. I always say, in fact, I just wrote this in this piece I wrote, that it's basically when you have a narcissistic relationship, it's the pathologically insecure preying on the conventionally insecure. And the conventionally insecure person is the student. Yeah. Okay. So who's sort of like, I don't know this yet. And all students are insecure. It's the nature of being a student. Yeah. And so because of that, the student is then going to be not going to learn as well may end up showing all those psychological symptoms I just talked about, the confusion, the self-doubt, the, the, the depression, the anxiety, all of those negative symptoms. They could end up losing weight. They may not engage in as much self-care. They'll have troubles with sleep, all the things we'd expect. So it takes a real toll on the trainee, again, who's not learning as well. And it can also kill their love for the entire profession. Mm -hmm. I have seen people with one attending, one preceptor, one difficult chief resident, that actually was enough for them to say, I'm out, I can't do this, I'm not made for this. So you've now lost somebody who actually could have been a very important and probably even a better one because they probably had empathy and kindness and they get pulled out of the game. So, I mean, I don't think people understand how far the ramifications of this can go. Now let's flip the paradigm. You actually have a lovely teacher, but a narcissistic student. The student is very entitled, has really poor limits and boundaries, demands things from the, the teacher that are completely unreasonable, expects the rules to be broken for them or shaped for them. Um, and then if they feel like they're not getting their way with the teacher, will threaten to go to the chair or the dean or whomever to complain about the teacher. So I think that it is, you would be amazed at how often you'll see that in a student. And so now this actually rather kind teacher 
is about to say they start losing their love for the game. They're like, this is this is not worth it anymore. And we'll say, I'm done. I'm out of here. Like, I'm not going to do any more. I'm going to go to pure clinical practice now because I just don't need this headache. And so they can go either way. The personality style is a personality style. I think it's more dangerous in the hands of a person who already has power. But the fact of the matter is, I think, frankly, overall, it's dangerous in whoever's got, who's got this personality pattern because their, their constant perception of threat, their insecurity means that they're always punching and they never get tired of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good place to stop. So thank you so much for listening. Join us for part two of the interview with Dr. Romani on narcissism in medical education and amongst doctors. Look for her on YouTube. Just search Dr. Romani. That's R-A-M-A-N-I. And if you like this sort of content, you can find more at Ars Longa Media's podcast, Healthy Toxic. That's healthy with two forward slashes toxic. If you're searching for it on the um, one of the podcast directories or, you know, just click the link in the show notes. All right, that's it. Have a good day and happy studying.